Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Hello, and thank you for joining us at the International History Declassified podcast. We are happy to have with us today Toby Mathiasen to discuss his work on Saudi Arabia in the Cold War and the impact of sectarianism on the Arabian Peninsula. Dr. Mathiasen is currently a Marie Curie Global Fellow at Stanford University and Kafoskari University in Venice, where he leads a project on Sunni-Shia relations in the Middle East with a focus on Iraq. Built on impressive use of Arabic primary sources and fieldwork in the region, Dr. Mathiasen has published two books already and has one forthcoming called The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shiism. Dr. Mathiasen, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Keon. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're very excited to have you on today and, and to discuss uh, a subject that uh, is of particular interest to me, and, and I'm eager to jump right into it and, and discuss your work about communism in Saudi Arabia. I think it's fair to say that communism isn't the first word that comes to people's minds when they think about the Saudi Peninsula. Um, so can you tell us a little bit uh, about your work on the history of the Saudi Communist Party and what makes them distinct from their counterparts in the region and the rest of the world? Yes, sure. So um, my work on the Saudi Communist Party has in many ways been a bit of a niche project uh, for myself, as has you know the history of the party been more of a, a niche theme in, in Saudi uh, history and, and I suppose broader you know, communist uh, uh, history. Um, I've uh, come across them uh, you know, a very long time ago now, I'm sad to say, uh, during the, the work uh, for my PhD, during fieldwork um, in Saudi Arabia, um, because most of my fieldwork was in the eastern province of the country where the Shia minority was located, and that uh, PhD was about the politics of, of the Shia community and its relations with the state. And um, eventually I found out that um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in particular, um, there was actually a strong leftist movement. So not just communist, but also you know, various forms of leftist politics. There was a workers' movement, um, various Arab nationalist movements were active uh, in the country as well. And it was only in the 70s that um, you know, political Islam really kind of replaced them, both in the wider regional level, um, in, in wider Saudi society, and also amongst uh, the Shi uh, community. So since then, I've really had an interest in this movement because it, yeah, it, it strikes us as so 
um, you know, odd and, and is, in a man, is in many ways a counterpoint to the kind of established narrative um, of Saudi and why the Middle Eastern history, which focuses, you know, on Islam and oil and authoritarianism and so on and so forth. And so for the past um, 10 years or so, I've always tried to um, collect sources um, and uh, and interview people as I went along, um, and eventually, you know, had enough for uh, for a proper article that kind of covered the the movement's um, uh, history. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I was very glad that uh, I was eventually you know able to publish it in a proper Cold War history magazine, and um, uh, and that we're now being able to discuss it here. Great, yeah, it, it your work definitely stands out i think in in um its depth as you say i mean niche maybe but it's it's also just it's it's significant to kind of uh increase the coverage of these issues you know these these uh leftist movements weren't happening you know just in in specific parts of the world they were occurring everywhere and it's important to sort of understand how they interacted with with each other can you tell us a little bit about how uh the sp the uh Communist Party of Saudi Arabia interacted with other Arab leftist movements and, and kind of what their actual belief system was relative uh, to those movements? Yes. Um, let me perhaps start by saying that, you know, during the Cold War, there was, of course, um, a focus in a sense on communist parties, uh, particularly also in the US. You know, there were these country studies done and they were often very superficial and they were very much, you know, with a kind of threat perspective. Um, in mind. And then after the end of the Cold War, many of these movements uh, really disappeared um, uh, into oblivion uh, uh, in, in both in terms of, of their actual, you know, many dissolved um, themselves, uh, but also in terms of the academic scholarship. Um, and it was just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really, you know, very fashionable anymore to study them. And that has changed a bit in the, in the last couple of years. And there were a number of initiatives um, you know, uh, uh, trying to to bring that uh, kind of broader kind of leftist tradition of the Middle East um, back into focus. And um, there are a couple of, you know, very big countries uh, where leftist politics played a very important role. And they have, uh, you know, understandably um, received uh, most of the attention. Um, but there were also, uh, and that's what, what I suppose my work is about, and there were also leftist movements in countries where, you know, they were really, you know, we, we wouldn't really usually associate uh, them with leftist politics. And these are actually all the, the six uh, Gulf states, um, uh, uh, you know, making up the Gulf Cooperation Council. And um, these movements interacted very strongly with each other. So especially the Saudis with the Bahrainis and with the Kuwaitis, but also with the Omanis. Um, uh, there's you know, quite a lot of scholarship now on um, the Dofa revolution, which in the 1960s and 70s um, tried to kind of uh, uh, liberate the rest of the Arabian Peninsula from Dofar, the southern province of Oman, um, and uh, they were also all very connected to South Yemen, which was the Arab world's only uh, Marxist-Leninist state. And um, there should be really even more work on, on South Yemen, but um, uh, because of the difficult security situation and the you know ongoing wars there, um, it's been very difficult to do on the ground research and many archives were, were lost, but that was really kind of, in a sense, the state sponsor of the 
uh, you know, in the region of, of communist parties and, 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 and other Marxist um, groups. And they also had uh, connections uh, to Iraq where the communist party had long played a very important role and where it also specifically was active, um, uh, you know, both in the North uh, amongst Kurds and, and um, other groups, but also especially amongst uh, uh, Shia, Arab Shia in the country's South and even in the shrine cities of Najaf and Karbala had a, a very strong presence. And so uh, in the Eastern province of, of Saudi Arabia, there were very strong connections um, to this Iraqi Communist Party that also partly flowed through these Shi transnational networks. Um, and then there were connections to the two-day party in, in Iran, which was really because of its size and, and long history and, and periods where it played a very important role was you know uh, a very you know very outstanding um, um, you know example of the communist movement um, in the in the region. Uh, I love any mention of uh, the two-day party or or work in Iran. So thank you for that. Um, but also, um, I'm curious how uh, the leftist movements in uh, Saudi Arabia were viewed um, in the country itself and and by the broader population. Um, this, as you were saying, is sort of a relatively small movement um, and kind of restricted, maybe not restricted, but definitely uh, stronger on the eastern uh, side of the country in the um, Shia regions. Mm. Is, is that, um, did that play a role in its sort of uh, perception in, um, among Saudis as a whole and its sort of development as a party? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to uh, differentiate between, um, you know, communism really as a as a very clearly defined ideology as embraced by, you know, a very small number of people that also became party members and so on and so forth. And the kind of general sense of um, leftist politics and perhaps even Arab nationalist, uh, Arab, you know, nationalist with a leftist bent um, ideas and ideologies um, uh, popular in the, the region. And that to, to understand that really, we have to go back to this period that had been termed the Arab Cold War, where the Arab uh, world was broadly speaking divided between um, socialist republics that were and often more or less aligned to the Soviet Union, but that were all not uh, communists and actually strongly repressed their domestic uh, communist movements, uh, an important nuance and and you know important example of why the middle east was was different from other parts uh, of the world and on the other hand kind of pro american pro nato uh, states many of whom were monarchies and the shah's iran at the time was was still one of them um, but the other key anchor here was saudi arabia but also jordan and other gulf monarchies and they really saw anything that had to do with, uh, you know, Nasserism and uh, broadly speaking, socialist Arab nationalism as a, as a huge threat. And in their eyes, they didn't differentiate very much between, you know, you know, orthodox Marxist Leninists and, you know, Nasserism, although, you know, the, the differences were obviously huge, both on an ideological um, scale and in, you know, in, in actual uh, politics, but to the Saudi kind of elite and decision makers, that was kind of one broader um, kind of threat that that uh, that they were, you know, trying to do everything uh, to counter. And so the Saudis really became 
became very important anti-communist actors uh, because they felt that uh, you know that there was this kind of broader wave uh, coming against them. And it is here that the use of um, you know a Saudi version of Islam as anti-communist ideology uh, starts to become very important, and where also especially the Americans start to see religion broadly and specifically um, Islam uh, and, and kind of a Salafi interpretation of Islam as a kind of bulwark against uh, communism. And then you have this kind of interaction between the United States and Saudi Arabia on the ideological level and the use of that kind of ideological glue also in, in regions very far away from the Middle East um, to kind of, um, if you like, immunize the populations against communist uh, ideology. And so it is in that context that the kind of domestic Saudi leftist movement plays such a, an outsized role because it really contributed to that uh, threat perception of the Saudi royal family, especially, and their you know, key allies that really communism was the main threat they faced around the world and they had to do everything they could to, to suppress it. Um, the Saudis, you know, never had, I mean, had relations with the Soviet Union um, before the Second World War, in fact, um, uh, you know, very early on, but then uh, during the Cold War never had relations with Soviet Union with almost no Eastern Bloc states and were very strong anti-communist actors uh, in, in many, many uh, of the conflicts, um, or, you know, during the global uh, Cold War. And the Saudi communists, as I say, played a role in a sense in, um, in pushing the, the Saudi royal family uh, to do that, despite their, hmm. their small size. Um, and we have to add to that that um, in the eastern province uh, uh, is, is, you know, is the location of the country's oil industry. And um, uh, the uh, Aramco oil company, especially in the 1950s, massively expanded oil production, built new towns and recruited tens mm -hmm. of thousands of, of workers. And it is especially amongst those workers that a kind of general sense of um, alienation from the Saudi state, from a kind of almost Jim Crow-like system of being treated in, in, in much worse ways than the foreign, you know, especially white uh, workers uh, who came to work in Aramco. Um, uh, uh, and it is in that kind of context that, uh, that leftist ideologies and a broader, broadly speaking kind of socialist Arab nationalist um, understanding of politics became fairly popular uh, in the country mm -hmm. and, and led and contributed to, to a number of very significant strike movements out of which then the first political parties uh, emerged. Interesting. I, I do kind of want to continue on this this uh, vein just a little bit and uh, turning to something that we we saw in your article, The Cold War and the Communist Party of Saudi Arabia, 1975 to 1991, which was published last fall in the Journal of Cold War Studies. Um, you explain in that article that the CPSA was particularly popular, popular among the Shia minority uh, within Saudi Arabia. Can you explain that dynamic a little bit further and, and maybe uh, how you saw that play out in, in your research? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the oil industry was basically located near the old uh, Shi towns. And while, you know, many Sunnis also came to work from other parts of the region in the oil industry, perhaps half the workers were from the Shi minority. And uh, so when 
these kind of strike movements uh, developed uh, in these new oil towns, it was almost natural that, you know, quite a lot of Shia would be uh, involved. And um, because they were, you know, they had kind of communal centers, um, Shia religious halls and so on, where, uh, you know, gatherings could take place. And they had a certain infrastructure in these old towns that were, you know, just a 20, 30 minute drive from the new oil towns they became really important as kind of, you know, resources to mobilize uh, the workers. Um, they also had strong, you know, ties to Bahrain, which was that time just still a, a short boat ride away and where, you know, politics had already, you know, led to a much more open kind of civil society, um, you know, mobilization. There was a, a press um, uh, and there were, you know, longer standing political movements of all types active and they also kind of, you know, tried to mobilize, um, you know, people in Saudi Arabia. And it is out of that kind of dynamic. And as I said, these connections to, to the Iraqi Communist Party, where also uh, Shia played a large role and the Lebanese Communist Party where, which also had, you know, quite a lot of success uh, amongst Shia that, and you know a, a fair number of of Saudi Shia also became in fact leaders uh, of the uh, of the Saudi um, Communist Party. There has been some work looking at you know ideological affinity, uh, perhaps a sense of of being you know the downtrodden. Um, uh, the Iraqi Communist Party, you know, for example, was quite successful in in uh, you know adopting certain elements of 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 you know Shi. Um, uh, narratives like Hussein, you know, someone seeking justice uh, uh, from oppression, kind of original martyr figure, and mm -hmm. and kind of reframing that, uh, uh, you know, to to make this ideology more acceptable to the masses. I think the two day also, you know, did that to a certain extent. But I think you know the main um, uh, the main focus here should be really be on 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 networks and and proximity. Um, and and so on and so forth. So once, because these movements were all clandestine, you know, political parties are still banned in Saudi Arabia. And at that time in particular, you know, if you were caught being a member of the communist party, you know, you could go to prison for a long time, uh, if, if, not, if not even worse things would happen to you. So these were clandestine networks that then of course relied on people that uh, you know, people you knew or people you completely trusted, and they ended up often being like in other political movements in the region, people from your, uh, you know, village or or urban quarter, and also extended family networks. And so we have the case that certain large families, you know, were recruited en masse to these movements, and and others weren't. And that has a lot to do with yeah, with with, with personal networks and and recruitment patterns. Uh, that, that's really fascinating. I think that that actually is something I'm, I'm really interested in kind of learning a little bit more about. Uh, we, we had uh, Rosie Bashir speak at our Washington History Seminar about her book, Archive Wars. And that book goes into pretty significant detail about the Saudi royal family's attempts to kind of create a national narrative and, and develop what they see as the Saudi story. Uh, in your own work with these kind of Shia communities, and, and, you know, I know you've written about their own attempts to develop their history and their kind of perspective inside of things. How do you see those two narratives clashing or comparing or interacting 
uh, as they've developed. I mean, are we getting two completely different stories here with one kind of being the more official funded state sponsored version and the other kind of being, as you say, the more clandestine kind of repressed or, or however you'd like to put it, uh, the story of the political minorities and the religious minorities in Saudi? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a good point. Uh, um, in in all of these monarchies in the Gulf and, and also elsewhere in the region, you, you had the development of a really kind of royal family-centered uh, uh, narrative that, that sought to you know, locate usually one founding figure at the very center of, of the whole national narrative. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in the Saudi case, this was Ibn Saud, the, the so-called unifier of the country who unified the country at the you know, in the early 20th century. Um, and then you had, um, you know, many of the earlier narratives are really fairly basic. I mean, they, they really ignored a lot of the regional specificities and, uh, you know, obviously tried to downplay the, the violence that was associated with state formation as, as, as was elsewhere. But in, you know, it was a, a kind of war of conquest. And so um, initially a lot of the kind of more problematic notions were glossed over. And so then, um, you had the development of kind of more peripheral stories. And um, in Saudi Arabia, that was particularly, um, you know, explosive in the case of the Hijaz, the, the place, you know, where Mecca and Medina are located, um, because that region had a, you know, fairly strong sense of, of, of self, uh, you, mm-hmm. know, you know, and, and separateness and an old Islamic. Its own, its own identity, sure. Yeah, which which was very different from the kind of, you know, in the identity of the Saudi center, also it's, you know, interpretation of Islam and so on and so forth. And the other main, you know, other story was in the Eastern province. And uh, yeah, you mentioned, I, I'd looked quite a lot at how local historians, um, you know, built up their own, their own um, narratives there. And um, I think, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, the, the, the Saudis have tried to address that, but, uh, but it's still, you know, in, in essence, that is, that is still um, the story. Now, one shouldn't forget that, um, especially in the last 20 years or so, quite a lot of this has actually been upgraded uh, in part by Western consultants. Um, so, you know, a lot of scholars, when they go to Saudi Arabia for the first time, they go to the Saudi you know, the National History Museum. And mm-hmm. you know they emphasize that you know there's this uh, you know this kind of religious narrative as well, and then it's all about these founding figures. But in fact, you know, um, uh, British consultants uh, in large you know uh, uh, amounts uh, devised this, and um, it's the same you have uh, now with more kind of you know inclusive identity uh, uh, narratives that are being propagated. Um, they are also, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of in part based on, on in a sense, identity politics um, debates uh, elsewhere. So we're not really talking about uh, kind of closed developments that are only uh, going on, um, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia. It's all related to, to wider um, issues. Um, you, you bring up the, the role of Western historians in, in developing this history. Um, as a Western historian yourself, uh, can you tell me about your own experiences working in the country and, and you know, were you able to, um, where you were able to kind of find successes and, and where you've run into difficulties? Yeah, I mean, this was already, uh, you know, it's already quite a while ago that I did that the bulk of my field work um, uh, in uh, 2008, um, you know, eight, nine, um, and, and, and then 
um, uh, 2011. Um, uh, I think I, at that point, there was a certain amount of, of opening up of the country to, to researchers from abroad. Um, there was a research uh, uh, institute that, that hosted people. Um, uh, there was a certain uh, sense that, yeah, uh, this kind of, you know, state-focused narrative had to be overcome. There was something called the national dialogue uh, uh, going on, where actually, you know, a lot of these kind of more peripheral narratives could find some sort of expression. And, you know, researchers were also, you know, there were publications about that and so on. So there was a sense that, you know, things were, you know, changing, at least to a certain mm -hmm. extent. But then um, I think, um, uh, uh, you know, with the start of the Arab Spring and, uh, you know, the kind of, um, you know, can't forget that at the start of the Arab Spring, it was actually, especially in the Eastern province, uh, uh, you know, a, a large protest movement started that um, for a couple of years actually really, you know, um, tried to, to mobilize people. And this was a, a much larger movement even than these labor movements of earlier periods and you know repression was also very harsh and there was a certain militarization also on the part of of certain uh Shi groups um at the same time you know the saudi allies in 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 egypt you know mubarak and and ben ali you know were overthrown uh, within a matter of weeks so there was a real sense of of fear also in the gulf so mm. you know uh, openings for political pluralism or debate really shrunk um, dramatically and um, you, you saw a much more, you know, openly repressive state coming back and one that, you know, monitored, um, you know, public expression of dissent, of, of, you know, of dissident narratives much more strongly uh, again after an initial uh, opening in the, in the first year or so. Uh, of the Arab Spring, and and since then you've really seen kind of Saudi Arabia turn much more fierce uh, into a, into a fierce state that also you know intervenes militarily uh, abroad. So I, I think now it's it's much more difficult to do that kind of um, you know fairly open research that that one was able to do a decade earlier. Um, perhaps you know one interesting thing about um, you know the kind of secular the history of secular narratives and and politics and so on in that kind of fierce uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, the, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia that's become, you know, so mm -hmm. famous and, and infamous, <laughs> uh, actually himself uh, 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 tries in some ways to link himself back to that uh, kind of, um, you know, secular uh, past of secular politics. And, you know, in, in a number of interviews, he's really blamed uh, all of Saudi Arabia's ills on 1979, um, you know, which which in his mind uh, means the Iranian revolution. But in 1989, mm -hmm. obviously, you also had, you know, a number of movements in Saudi Arabia denouncing the royal family as too secular. You know, you had a, 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 a hostage taking in the in mm -hmm. the years, and then a, a real kind of Islamization of the country following on from that. So much more intensive, you know, public morality enforcement, you know, religious police in the street. Uh, and the kind of massive funding of religious causes. And it's really interesting to see that that he kind of blames this all for, for Saudi Arabia, you know, for most of Saudi Arabia's problems and really seeks to, to go back to that pre-1979 uh, period, obviously not to the Communist Party, but to a, to mm -hmm. a kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, a kind of a different style of politics and a different country 
where you know not everything was was defined uh, through you know whether it it um, it, it uh, you know was legitimately uh, Islamic um, or not. Um, uh, all the while, of course, himself uh, you know being you know very. Uh, uh, repressive uh, towards uh, dissent, um, as we've as we've all seen. But in a sense, um, there is a there is a kind of nostalgia almost, which mm. even at that high level has developed for this kind of you know the period of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when you had also you know Saudi intellectuals talking more openly about about all of these things. And that is, in fact, uh, you know, an interesting. An interesting shift uh, in the kind of public. Yeah, debate. that's another overlap with with Iran as well, right? Of, of yes. sort of this nostalgia for the 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 more open period, um, kind of overlooking some of the more repressive elements of that period as well. But yes, um, more well, open in some the, senses, of course. But with the market difference that in Saudi Arabia you now have the most powerful person in the state, you know, trying to link himself to that seventy mm-hmm. uh, nine. Yeah. Very interesting. Period. Whereas yeah, it's fascinating. That, you know, and whereas that is not the case in 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 Iran, of course. But True. and also, you know, he has really dismantled a lot of these the kind of institutions and and structures that that were put in place uh, uh, after seventy nine. He's kind of dis, you know disbanded in large ways the religious police, withdrawn funding from religious institutions. You know, uh, you know to a large extent stopped proselytizing uh, abroad uh, and so on. And so these were changes that were not really thought of possible a long time ago. Even myself, you know, because I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working now, you know, on the, on the Cold War period, you know, it was really a constant, you know, constant Saudi funding for foreign causes and so on and so forth, uh, you know, uh, sponsoring Islam as, as anti-communism, as I said. And so many of these institutions were now rolled back um, over the last uh, few years. Hmm. I find this uh, this this concept of uh, historical nostalgia to be an interesting one and, and uh, interesting to see it play out in, in Saudi Arabia, like you mentioned, in, in Iran, like Keon referred to, and um, increasingly in, in other places, yearning for a, a, a nostalgic uh, rose-tinted days, which perhaps are, are not necessarily... Uh, a full representative picture, but um, fascinating. Uh, I'd like to transition us to a, to a question that we ask all of our all of our guests um, uh, who, who come on the podcast here, uh, which is: uh, Can you think of anything that you've discovered in in your time researching this topic, whether it be a, a specific document or a moment or or a story or or, or something uh, that surprised you uh, or, or you know perhaps challenged your your preconceived notions about uh, about history or about the the history that you were dealing with? Well, all the time I'm finding stuff that that uh, that surprises me and uh, and uh, you know, undermines uh, my my preconceived notions. I must say, for example, this what we just talked about that that kind of rolling back of a lot of the you know the the things that in a sense made Saudi Arabia. You know, you, we might not agree with um, you know with with a lot of things they did, but at the at the same time, you know, they were pretty successful in. Uh, in uh, you know in putting themselves on the map and in um, you know gaining influence almost across the whole you know Islamic world um, uh, you know since the 1960s and and really rolling that all back uh, in, in in favor of a kind of um, you know kind of uh, you know 21st century kind of robot era you know developmentalism with tech cities and and so on and 
Um, I think that uh, uh, and and you know foreign wars that that are you know hard to to justify. Um, I think that uh, that surprised me on the kind of wider geopolitical level. But uh, in terms of um, you know the the research, I must say I was when I first went to Saudi Arabia. You know the existed I'd never heard of a Saudi Communist Party, and that really surprised me. And that's why for like a decade, I, I you know I always collected everything I, I found on them, and um, because I thought it's a nice kind of counter, yeah, as a counterpoint to to kind of established um, wisdom. And I also felt that you know these people had had really been forgotten, and um, I, I I thought that especially some of their critiques of political economy, you know, their critiques of of how to use oil wealth. Um, you know that it shouldn't be wasted. It should be used for for something sensible. That's also you know good for wider populations and perhaps support you know causes that are you know sensible, broad, and and not just you know wars and and so on and so forth. I thought were you know important to to preserve and um, you know perhaps uh, make accessible also you know to to younger Saudis or or others who might be might be interested in this. Well, Toby, I, I really have a hard time with a lot of these interviews because I feel like we're just getting the tip of the iceberg here. And I think that's true uh, with a lot of the kind of themes when it comes to Saudi history, that there's so many different levels and so many complex forces at play. Um, but also just in kind of discussing your own research and, and the subjects that you that we've kind of just broached today, I, I have many more questions, but um, unfortunately, I think we've run out of time. So uh, instead, I will have to say thank you, and I really hope to have you back uh, soon, and, and we can sort of take another, um, you know, hack at, at covering a little bit more, and, and maybe have you back again after that, and we can <laughs> cover even more and, and, and work our way to um, getting somewhere near the depth that, that uh, I think the subject warrants. Thank you very much. It was really great talking to you. I mean, perhaps just a, a last point um, on the kind of nostalgia for this more kind of leftist part. Sure. I mean, I think we, you know, we shouldn't be cynical about that, um, you know, because in, in many contexts, especially in, in, in a bit divided societies, the, the, the nostalgia is also for a politics that doesn't emphasize, you know, sectarian division, tribal division, regional division, and so on and so forth, and where people come together um, you know, with one idea in mind and trying to work uh, together. Mm -hmm. You know, from many of my interviews, uh, I actually realized that there was, uh, uh, you know, many people didn't know, you know, the other person's sect or, you know, background. And there was a sense of working together for something, for something new. And I think that explains also why in places like, you know, Iraq or Lebanon and in the Gulf, you know, there, there is a sense that, well, you know, there might have been might not agree with all their politics, but there was something really special about these movements uh, in, in the ways in which they, you know, they brought people um, together, um, you know, around shared ideas. I, I love ending on a positive note. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and and so. thank Me you too. again for, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you both. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. 
And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.